You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and we'll be considering verses 33 to 36 this morning. Before we get there, I want to uh, let you know that next week we will begin a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so as we think about, as we think about our world today, and specific, uh, particularly as we live here in America, we think about how our culture is um, characterized by consumerism, by individualism, by self-centeredness, and all of these things uh, were a part of the culture there at Corinth. Uh, and so as I have been reading through 1 Corinthians already and studying some, I've just been struck uh, at how similar the time we live in now is to the Corinthian church and the, the difficulties they faced and the challenges they faced. They're known as the messed up church, right? Well, the truth is they were, they were plunged in this pluralistic uh, society, this culture, and it was, I can imagine how difficult it was for them to stay true to the gospel and to Christ. Uh, and so a, a, a theme around 1 Corinthians has to do with uh, unity uh, in the church, which is centered in on Christ in the midst of a pluralistic world. Uh, and so go ahead and begin reading through 1 Corinthians and thinking through, through that together. It's, uh, I'm really excited about getting into that book with you, so that'll begin next week. Uh, for today, we're in Romans eleven thirty-three to thirty-six, and let me pray once more before we uh, begin. Father, we pray that you would minister to us now by your word. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us, so that we we would have a, a a real sense of your glory, so that we would be in awe of who you are and what you have done. Accomplish this by your word. Accomplish this in our hearts so that we would lose our grip on the things of this world and this earth and all that it has to offer. That we might behold your glory in the person and work of Christ as he is proclaimed. So do this, we pray. Build up your church, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. In his book, uh, Reflection... Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis expresses his struggle that what seemed to, to him to be an excessive number of calls for us to worship God. And what was worse, Lewis said, was that it seemed like God himself actually demanded over and over that his people worship him. Uh, you know how we don't really like someone who tries to draw all attention to themselves. They continually try to get others to consider their, how great they are. That can be really annoying. And so Lewis considered, why is it that God demands that sort of adoration and worship for himself? To Lewis, God at one time seemed like a vain old woman insisting on other people complimenting her. But as he wrestled with this dilemma, he came to realize that the enjoyment of God and the worship of God were not unrelated and so he said, what we're actually doing when we worship God is we are giving expression to our enjoyment of God. And so when he calls us to worship him, when he demands that we worship him, when he calls us to give him glory, what he's actually doing is calling us to the very thing that is in our best interest and for our greatest joy. So Lewis concludes, 
The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So we've been making our way through what are known as the five solas of the Reformation. Sola means only or alone. We've considered how Scripture alone is our ultimate authority in faith and life. We've considered how grace alone is the basis of our salvation, how faith alone is the means or instrument by which we receive that grace, and that Christ alone is the only mediator and Savior. And today we come to soli deo gloria, or to the glory of God alone. By this we mean that he and he alone is worthy. God and God alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. All glory belongs to him. And therefore, we ought to live for his glory. That's why we were created. We should live for his glory alone. So look with me at Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Paul says, All the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So our theme for this text in this sermon this morning is because God is supreme in all things, all glory belongs to him alone forever. Or in other words, God is the greatest, so he gets all the glory. Because God is supreme in all things, all glory belongs to him alone forever. Now we're slipping in during the middle of, kind of like slipping in during a movie middle of a movie. Paul has written 11 chapters already, and he has five more to write before finishing up. In a sense, though, he is concluding one section of his letter and transitioning to the second part of his letter. You could say that the first section of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, is mainly doctrinal. Uh, particularly, he's drawing out doctrines of the gospel, justification by faith. All have sinned and fallen short, Uh, All are found guilty in Adam, but now there's this one new man, Jesus Christ, and we receive him by faith. It's a glorious, um, a glorious work concerning the gospel. And then the second part of this letter, uh, chapters 12 through the end of Romans, Uh, are more practical in nature. So it's as if Paul has focused in on the doctrine, and this is the theology, and this is how we are saved, and now here is how we live in light of that gospel. Of course, there's overlap uh, for sure, but we can see these verses as a sort of transition, as a conclusion to the doctrinal portion, and it is a benediction or doxology, a word of praise. Paul breaks off in verses 33 to 36 as if he just cannot contain himself, as he cannot contain the wonder of what he is feeling at all he has just expressed. Now it's in black ink right there in front of us, but don't let us miss what's going on here. 
as Paul is teaching others, he can't help but get caught up in the amazement of what he's just proclaimed. And he can't help but proclaim the supremacy of God in all things. So it's as if you're riding along in the car listening to a sermon or a song about our great God and you're nodding your head in agreement or singing along with the song, but then all of a sudden it hits you. Something changes. Something clicks. You know what I'm talking about? Something changes and all of a sudden you are in awe of who God is. You start talking back to the preacher on the radio. You start doing a fist pump or something. Uh, You pull off to the side of the road and you just bask in the greatness of who God is. So what is it that has done this to Paul? What has he been talking about all this time? Well, as I said, if you look to the closest context of this passage, you'll see, see he's been talking about the glorious plan of God in redeeming a people for himself. He's been talking about the fullness of the Gentiles, uh, bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles and grafting them onto the tree. And he's been talking about the Jewish people and grafting them back onto the tree and how God will save all of his people by his mercy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's been talking about the gospel. And if you look at the broader context, you see that all that's come before has been highlighting the work of God in justifying sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. See, what happens when you recount the truths of the gospel as you begin to see the wisdom and knowledge of God and His plan of redemption, this mysterious and wonderful plan through Jesus Christ, it results in wonder and worship. You can't hear these truths with ears of faith without being filled with wonder and amazement. If you hear these truths rightly, you can't help but begin worshiping Him, giving Him praise, giving Him glory. And that's what Paul is doing here. You see what he says. All the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now that little word, all, somehow expresses something that other words can't. It's a word of exclamation. It's a word you say when you're caught uh, by surprise in wonder or fear or joy. What do you say? Oh, look at that sunset. Look at those mountains. Oh, can you believe how beautiful those flowers are? Sometimes the greatness of God ought to move us to say, oh, and really all of the time. Oh, how great is our God. How powerful. Oh, how rich his wisdom and knowledge. Oh, how amazing his love for sinners. How great his mercy toward us. But it's not just some sort of whipped up frenzy of worship. It's clearly thoughtful. It's informed worship here in these verses. The truths of the gospel have entered in through Paul's mind and made their way to his heart, and it gushes back out in words of praise, exalting the supremacy of God in all things. So I want us to just simply walk through these few verses and see how this theme is expressed. You'll remember it has to do with the supremacy of God, because God is supreme in all things. All glory belongs to him alone forever and ever. So first, I want you to see the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. The riches 
of God's wisdom and knowledge. God is the greatest in wisdom and knowledge. Uh, He says they are deep. Oh, how deep are these things? That's what Paul exclaims. Oh, the depths of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. As you think about things that are deep, I I considered uh, the ocean. My mind turned immediately to the ocean. And the deepest known area in the ocean is called the Mariana Trench. It's located off the uh, shores of China and Japan. This trench is 15,000 miles long with an average width of 43 miles and it reaches a maximum known depth. It's interesting how they say that. A maximum known depth of 10,994 meters or about 6.8 miles deep. Now that's deep, right? It's deep for me when I dive into a 12-foot pool. I don't want to go any deeper than that. My ears start popping and it hurts. But of course, there are expert divers who can go deeper. The record for a scuba diving, uh, for scuba diving is a depth of 332 meters or two tenths of a mile. Now compare that with the 6.8 miles of the Mariana Trench. They wouldn't even get come close to getting to the bottom of that. You need some heavy-duty equipment to endure the pressure and the temperature at those depths. It is depth. That is an oh-wow kind of depth. Paul exclaims as he thinks about the depths of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. They are deep, and he can't. Imagine how deep they are. He goes further, though. It's not just that they are deep. They're too deep. God's wisdom and knowledge are too deep for us to even comprehend or search out. And so exclaims how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. And we think immediately of the prophet Isaiah who says his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways not our ways. And in particular, he has in mind this great and glorious plan of redemption, which he has just laid out to the Romans. I mean, think about the gospel. Who would come up with a plan like this? Who can fathom the wisdom of God in ordaining all things uh, coming to pass so that Grace may abound, even taking into account the evil that God has ordained come to pass, that grace may abound, that his wrath might be shown, that his mercy might be shown. Who would come up with calling a random man out of the world, out of Ur, to make him of him a great nation? Who would come up with the sacrificial and ceremonial systems of the Old Testament to give us categories for cleanliness and purity, for giving us categories of forgiveness and substitution. Who would come up with fulfilling all the promises of God in just one man, the God-man Jesus Christ? Who would come up with the plan of offering up himself in the place of sinners and forgiving their sins? Who would have come up with the plan of not simply including just one type of people, but those out of every tongue, tribe, people, and nations? This is a glorious plan of God. It's unsearchable. God is unsearchable in His ways. 
God's wisdom and knowledge, His plans and His ways and His judgments aren't just deep, they're too deep for us to even comprehend. And to bring this home even more to us, Paul turns and asks three questions. He's not looking for answers to them. He already knows the answers, but think about it. The first is this, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? It's a quote from Isaiah 40, 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? When you get to know someone, you can sometimes get to know how they think. So over a time, a speechwriter gets to know the person he's writing for, his personality, the way he likes to say things, his favored expressions, and even the tone and inflections of his voice. But even then, the two can't possibly know each other's minds. They are two distinct minds with two distinct wills and different thoughts. I think I know my wife Rachel pretty well. But even then, there are times what she says or does, they surprise me. I can't even know her mind fully as well as I know her. And how much less can we know the mind of God? If we can't even know the mind of another human, how in the world do we think we could ever come close to knowing the mind of God? And Paul continues, who has ever been his counselor? Again from Isaiah 40, 13. Who has instructed the Lord? To whom has God gone to for some new insight or idea? To whom does he go when he needs help making certain decisions? It's silly to think about, isn't it? And who has ever given to God that God should repay him? This is a quote from the lips of God himself in Job 41.11. As God speaks to Job, he says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? He says, Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Or as Peter proclaims in Athens, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, Paul expands on this idea, summarizing it in verse 36. You see that connection word for Here, he's giving the reason for God's greatness. The reason for God's supremacy in all things. And he says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. So look at each one of these phrases that Paul uses. For from him are all things. By this we see that God is the greatest because he is the source of all things. He's the source. From God, all things have come into being. From nothing, God spoke everything into existence. And without him, nothing has been made that has been made. This is not all Paul has in mind here. Not simply creation. He does have that in mind, but he has more in mind. Take into account the context, and we recognize that not only our creation is from him, but also our salvation is from him. He is the source. This is what Paul has been talking about throughout the course of his letter to the Romans. That although through the one man, Adam, all incurred guilt and death, God sent another man, the man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law in every way that Adam couldn't. And Jesus walked not in a garden, 
but through the wilderness. Adam had all he needed to obey God, and yet he couldn't do it. Jesus, on the other hand, humbled himself and was stripped bare, even suffering the wrath of God on the cross for sinners. And yet even then he passed the test and fulfilled the law of God and the plan of redemption. Through this one man, Paul says, through this obedience, the many are made righteous to those who come to him in faith. For as Paul says in Romans 6.20, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now all of this is from God. We have life from God. And if you are a believer, you have new life from God. We owe our, our, our complete lives to God. But do you know that you also owe your new life to Him as well? That it wasn't merely a decision that you made to follow Jesus. So if you came to God in repentance and faith, there was something underneath that repentance and faith. There was something going on behind that repentance and faith. There was God's grace renewing your mind, renewing your heart, working within you, changing you by the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. Now a common but unbiblical sentiment is expressed by the old Southern Baptist preacher Herschel Hobbes. I hate to uh, hit on Southern Baptists, but in a sermon many years ago, he said the devil and God held an election to determine whether or not you would be saved or lost. The devil voted against you and God voted for you. So the vote was a tie. It's up to you now to cast the deciding vote. But doesn't this belittle the glory of God in our salvation? Wouldn't casting the deciding vote give us something to boast about, to brag about, to take pride in? But rather, we contend that salvation is from the Lord. From first to last, from the Lord. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. For those whom he predestined, he also called And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it all goes to the praise and glory of the grace of God because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Have you considered this truth of your salvation, of your life and of your new life? That everything good that you have has come from the Lord, is owing to him? If you're here and you're an unbeliever, Have you considered God's goodness to you? Have you responded to these good gifts of God to you? Pastor Kent Hughes tells the story of one of the worst shipwrecks in the history of the Great Lakes. About 300 people died in September of 1860. But there was a young man named Ed. Edward Spencer, a student at Northwestern University, and he was one who, one of the many who put his life on the line to save others in the midst of that tragedy. It's reported that he single-handedly saved 
17 people. And because of the physical and emotional turmoil that he experienced, he was never able to resume his studies. His brother said that the faces of those he couldn't save haunted him daily. But years later, before he died, it was noted that not one of the 17 people that he rescued ever came back to say thank you. And how much more tragic is it for the God of heaven and earth to give you life and breath, his care and provision, and for you to respond in apathy and rebellion and disobedience by living for yourself rather than God. And he offers you forgiveness and eternal life if you will now receive his son in repentance and faith. Turn away from your sin and cling to the one, Jesus Christ, who offers you that which is truly life, and you will be forgiven and accepted by God. And Christians, how can we possibly think of not being changed by the gift of salvation God has given us in Christ? For Christ not only rescued us from drowning, he brought us back from the dead. He suffered not simply physical pain and emotional turmoil as he died on the cross, but suffering under the wrath of God for our sins. It was because of us, it was because of our sins that he endured the wrath of God. And now our lives ought to be one continual thank you to God. A life of gratitude for saving us by his grace. So I wonder, is this what characterizes your life? Are there areas of your life that instead of saying thank you or saying forget you, I'm keeping this to myself, I'm living the way I want to? And I would just plead with you now is as good a time as any to repent and to trust him once again. To turn away from the anger and bitterness that you are still holding on to. To turn away from the pride or the self-centeredness or the greediness, or the lust. Turn away from those sins and trust in Christ once again. He might soften your heart. That you might live a life of gratitude for His love. And when you do that, you'll find that it was never worth holding on to in the first place. That sin, that bitterness, that unforgiveness. Whatever you're dealing with, you'll find it was never worth holding on to. Because in Christ you will have your treasure. You will have your treasure. And it will never leave you unsatisfied. From God are all things. Life and new life. Salvation. And through him are all things, Paul says. Here we see that God is the greatest because he is the sustainer. Of all things. God is supreme over all things because He is the sustainer of all things. God upholds all things by His power. If He were to release His sustaining grip on the universe, it would crumble like hardened clay into a billion little pieces. And you, believer, He sustains you by His grace. Just as God worked in you to give you faith, He is working in you now both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Or as the hymn says, "'Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." 
From God are all things, and through him are all things, and to him are all things, or for him are all things. God is the greatest because he is the end of all things. John Calvin comments here, The whole order of nature would be strangely subverted were not God, who is the beginning of all things, not also the end of all things. All things were made by God. All things are sustained by God. All things were made and are being sustained all for God and His glory. As we read earlier, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Or another catechism question, Why did God create you and all things? For His own glory. Now, what Paul has implied here throughout these verses, he now states plainly, to God be the glory forever. Amen. Listen to Calvin once more. God justly claims for himself absolute supremacy. And in the condition of mankind and of the whole world, nothing is to be sought beyond his own glory. Listen to this. It hence follows that absurd and contrary to reason and even insane are all those sentiments which tend to diminish His glory. In other words, since God is supreme and all glory belongs to Him, we ought to glorify Him in all that we think, say, and do. And in fact, to diminish His glory is the definition of insanity. Thomas Watson tells us that glorifying God consists in four things. It consists in appreciation, in adoration, in affection, and in submission. He says this is the yearly rent we pay to the crown of heaven. Appreciation, adoration, affection or love, and then it turns to submission and obedience. This is what glorifying God is. James Calvert and his wife Mary were Methodist missionaries to the cannibalistic islands of Fiji in the 1800s. Now for many of us, becoming a missionary is daunting in itself, is it not? The idea of leaving all behind and going to a foreign land, very frightening. But going to a place which practices cannibalism? (laughs) Was he crazy? What was he thinking? Well, it's reported that as the missionaries were going, the ship captain tried to convince them not to go, saying, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. To which Calvert replied, we died before we came here. And you don't have to go and preach the gospel to cannibals to live for the glory of God, but you do have to die before living for the glory of God. You have to die to yourself and your own desires if you want to live for the glory of God. You have to die to your desires for comfort and ease if you were to do the work of evangelism. You'll have to die to wanting uh, to simply close the garage door and hibernate for the weekend if you want to show mercy and love to your neighbors. You'll have to die to your cravings for things, for stuff, if you want to give to the poor, you have to die to yourself before you can live for the glory of God. Or as Paul says in the next verses, when he turns to the application, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, 
by the mercies of God to present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let's ask the Lord to bless us and to strengthen us by his word.